Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 144 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's impeachment o'clock. <laughs> it's impeachment o'clock. No, no. It beep, beep, beep. That's the sound of a bus backing, uh, backing up, up over, over everybody. Being driven by Gordon Sondland over everybody. Well, he has definitely shown up and uh, claimed the news cycle for himself yeah. as we speak. Yeah. Uh, indeed, literally as we speak, I think he's in the middle of his back and forth with the uh, Ranking member Nunes about all the Obama conspiracy theories to which he's not privy. Um, yeah, well, that's uh, we'll we'll skip over the the Nunes line of questioning, <laughs> and uh, I think we're going to open with an extended Trumplandia segment because we kind of have to. Yeah, we got impeachment palooza in full effect. We've got some pardons to talk about. We have some West Bank uh, legal determinations to talk about. We have subpoenas in the Supreme Court. We've got Attorney General Barr's speech, which in- includes. Both broad sort of uh, separation of powers themes that we'd want to talk about anyways, but then has a little national security law nugget, and I do mean nugget, at the end. And then... Um, and also a gross mischaracterization of Boumediene, but hey. Well, that's the, you know, that's the nugget I'm talking about. But also the, 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 the you know, uh, conservatives have scruples and liberals have none. We have, we have much to discuss about that one. It deserves some attention. Um, if time permits, which it probably won't, we would talk about military commissions because there's so much going on with that. We keep giving a short trip to the commissions. And so I feel bad because we really need to do like a full, like we need time to do it. But you and I, our schedules, you know, the, the, the dirty little secret of law professors is like late November is just about the worst time of year for us because, you know, in the fall semester, there's no break like spring break. You know, you're pushing up against the crush of exams. You probably have some family commitments, right? And it's just... Rough times. It, it's a uh, well. We're pressed for time. We're going to keep it in our normal boundaries rather than doing one super long episode. And therefore, Bobby boundaries, not Steve boundaries. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, I always like it when we can actually. I think once or twice we've been under an hour. Yeah, and it made me so it happy. It does. Um, so we want to talk. We want to note. The Wait, most- you also have to pre- preview our frivolity. Oh well, there's but there's more to note. Oh, so I, I we, see. I'm we, jumping. I'm 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 jumping, jumping over the. There's too much Trump landed. To so military commissions. We will probably kick off to another day. We will note the Mathana decision on citizenship. Yep. Um, if if time does permit, we can talk about DHS succession, which is talk about a sustaining member, an improbable one. But there it is, with still more to discuss. Yeah, they botched it up. Or they botched it, or they, um, they did something bad. There's something. Uh, speaking of which, or maybe not, uh, we at Frivolity have a, have a gem of a of a twofer. We've got the Mandalorian and the Crown. No spoilers now. We'll save the spoilers for later. Let's jump right in with Trumplandia. Trumpland. Okay. Um, let's start with impeachment palooza. Uh, obviously, the 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 news cycle today is improperly. We'll focus on the extent to which Sondland has really come out and expressed. Very explicitly said. You know, yes, I, there was a yes, there was a quid pro quo. Yes, everybody knew about it. And yes, the president personally directed me to pursue this, et yes. cetera, et cetera. Um, so, what if anything does it surprise you that he's come out so clearly? Um, only because his prior testimony was to the contrary, and so he's now opened himself up to some pretty significant perjury charges. Uh, there's a few people who have, as this thing has developed and not gone away as they might have hoped, and as, you know, interesting, and this will connect with something we say earlier, you know, so far, 
nobody being thrown any pardon love. Um, people are beginning to lawyer up for these testimonies. And as they do, you see the downstream effect of that where they start coming really clean. Right. The lawyer's like, uh, buddy, you uh, can't you keep can't saying keep lying this, to yeah. Congress. So, so there's that. Um, what about the, uh, what about the inclusion in his narrative, uh, very conspicuous inclusion of, of others and not just Trump. He's, he's saying, I'm not the only one that knew there were other people that definitely. So knew I actually this. think this is structurally the most important feature of today's testimony, which is to widen the conversation to be about more than the president, right? That, that the notion that this was the president on a frolic with Rudy Giuliani, right, I think is really blown up by this testimony. Um, Sondland, Sondland goes out of his way over and over again to stress that Secretary Pompeo and even Vice President Pence were in the loop and were, under, were, were aware of what's going on. You know, this Pompeo piece coming on the same day that there's news that Pompeo is thinking about resigning from the State Department to go run for the Senate in Kansas. So, you know, this is big. So this, that, and by the way, that little uh, coincidence of timing illustrates a point that I think uh, we see again and again, which is if you've been sort of um, relatively untarred by a scandal associated with Donald Trump while serving his administration, for most people, it's only a matter of time. Like you can't ever quite get out before, you know, something tags you. I think Rick Perry like got a little catch right as Rick Perry is leaving that, that he got pulled into this story, but not really in quite the same way. Um, Just it, when I thought I was out, yes, they pulled me back it's in. Some version of that. Um, so Pump- now the reason this is interesting for Pompeo is this question of, uh, so he's going to leave anyways. Uh, he's going to go run for the Kansas Senate or so it seems. Um, how does this tie in to what really matters, which is the end game? And the House is not the end game. No, no, the Senate is the end game. And so I think, you know, I've, I've been trying to figure out all along, what are the inflection points if you're Mitch McConnell? Yeah. And to me, the most obvious inflection point is anything that might cost the Republicans the Senate in 2020, because whatever happens in the presidential election, you know, a Republican Senate would be the bulwark, right, against you know, a President Warren or a President Biden or whatever, right? And a, a Republican Senate would be the bulwark against, say, a whole raft of new Democratic judges and a, right all these other things. Right, exactly. This is this is surely in Mitch McConnell's mind. Like the actual paramount thing here is to Keep not the lose the Senate. So then it follows that all that really matters, the objective indicator that's going to determine behavior, will be whatever's the most accurate uh, and up to date polling. In those states that are having Senate elections where the Republican seat is possibly contested, and what is the likely Republican voter, uh, or, or perhaps you know voters more generally, where are they on this issue? And, and, and are there seats like the Kansas seat that the Republicans cannot afford to lose that would all of a sudden potentially be in play in a scenario in which Pompeo or Chris Kobach, right, is the... Republican nominee for the seat, right? That, like that's where I think the needle might actually move. Now that seems like a that's that, that you might be saying to yourself that's a really you know sort of cynical, real politic way of looking at this. But I think that's it's how dis- McConnell's it's looking. It's at a this. descriptively accurate way of looking at it. The interesting question is: um, Is it clear? It, will it ever be clear to him or anyone else what the actual effect on those likely votes would be from the Senate actually pulling out the knives? Right. And uh, at the at the trial stage, actually removing the president in sort of a Varys like move uh, to bring Game of Thrones into it. I mean, is McConnell prepared to play Varys and switch out the the person who sits on the Iron Throne? But, but, so I, I I'm with you on the high politics of that, right? I think there's an even more base problem here, which is if Pompeo himself, right, is tarred with this, then all of a sudden the Kansas Senate race becomes a referendum on 
you know, on the scandal itself as opposed to on the substantive policies of the Trump administration. So on that is this gets to a question I was, I was wanting to ask you because I think you followed today's developments closer than I. Just because you were in class. I was in class. I try not to look at the news too much while I'm teaching um, in cybersecurity. So actually all too relevant, presumably. Um, does the claim that Pompeo, let alone Pence, knew yeah. something, does that... I don't. I think there's a spectrum of involvement that runs from yes, I was the one, you know, implementing the the right. the extortion. You know, the did ex- you order? Did you order, Lieutenant? Yeah, damn right, I ordered. The, you're right. So there's that, and then there's Kendrick, right? And then, and then there's sort of the the collateral stuff, the orbital stuff about are you are you denying right. guilty by association? Yeah. Well, are, did you know and failed to, to say that you knew and failed to prevent it from happening? Well, that's not good, obviously, but it's not the same thing as, as being involved in pushing the agenda. It's not like the, the president's uh, primary culpability and obviously like Giuliani's. Um, but if, if let's say Pompeo was aware that something like this was going on, as it seems likely he, he probably was, or Pompeo or Pence, if they knew, but didn't somehow stop it. I'm not sure that tars them in a major way. Like, I'm not sure how much that'll carry that's over right. into a Senate no, but, race. You know, but you know what it does want, what make me wonder? Um, it certainly makes me wonder if Pompeo would be called to testify. Um, and especially if he resigns as Secretary of State, right? If there would be then, you know, a pretty good argument that he couldn't refuse to testify. I mean, we have, you know, Judge, we, we know that uh, next Monday, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's going to rule in the McGahn case and whether McGahn can be compelled to testify. Um, obviously, that won't be the last word, but just, yeah. you know, is there going to be pressure? Is, is Sondland's testimony going to also move the needle? on whether the White House feels the need to send other to, to allow slash yeah. send right other people to testify if they really think that this is as damning as it certainly seems to me. Well, you know, for some of them, and taking Pompeo as an example, if the claim is that he participated in firsthand in conversations or events that are materially relevant to the factual picture that were not him talking to the president, but were him talking to Sondland or whoever. And I don't know what the claim is, but if that's the claim, yeah. that's different than, hey, what did the president say to you? I think there, when you're talking about direct communications to the president, they're going to be more likely to resist and, and more, more likely to win if they resist. Um, all right. So uh, so impeachment Palooza really actually, I, I, I confessed that before this morning, I was beginning to think that the day-to-day steadiness of it was kind of creating a numbing effect where uh, people were beginning to throw up their hands right. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but now uh, this this might have pierced a little bit. We'll see what comes. I, of it. You know, I mean, I, I continue to be cynical that anything is going to really move the needle. But but if, but you know, if I mean the the what what is so pro- in a nutshell, what's so problematic about Sondland's testimony from Trump's perspective is that it eviscerates two of the defenses right that have increasingly been been sketched out by the president's supporters one that the president really did that hero didn't really under like you know his minions got carried away right right, right? and he may have said some bombastic things that's just his style but but if you actually directly if you really wanted to know what did he really think he was doing he didn't think he was right. literally making so i think that's out the window if unless Sondland's lying again i think that's out the window here but also the sort of the plausible deniability that others weren't aware like right that that no one understood what was going on right Sondland saying everyone understood what was going I'm on i'm sure i'm sure and they he, all and, and he brought receipts yeah yeah um now it is to your point about you're cynical about whether it's going to penetrate and change minds it, i think it's telling that you're beginning to see um, some clearly, you know, credentialed conservative figures like Ken Starr. Ken Starr, I, I understand, came out today and said, this is evidence of bribery. We have evidence the president has committed a bribe. That's right. The Constitution doesn't say anything about impeachment for bribery. 
<laughs> well, and also that, that's and, a joke. And it I, literally I, says bribery. It literally says it. Um, you and mean I, figuratively. And, no, I mean literally. Uh, Napolitano, I think, on Fox also said something to this effect. The, 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 he's not a judge, Napolitano. Right. And these are people who are not likely and not readily going to say these sorts of things. Can, about can I just say one more thing? While we're on Napolitano, can I just say one thing that's always bothered me? Yeah. The ABA's rules of professional conduct specifically say you should not use titles like judge right, in context in which there's a reasonable possibility that someone will misinterpret that as suggesting that you have some more authority than you actually have. Like, you know, it's actually probably unethical to refer to yourself as judge on air like that. Just Interesting. Ah, well, you, you're, you were a New York resident. You can uh, perhaps uh, pursue something. I am still a member of the New York Bar in good standing. I'm a third department. I am a retired member well, of the New York Bar. I had to formally retire. So of course, this is, after, my this is after we went 10 rounds yesterday on Vinman wearing his uniform. Right, like the did somebody object to? Yeah, like all the Trumpies came after Vindman for showing up for his testimony in uniform. I'm like, dude, it's a violation of regulations to show up to Capitol Hill on duty on official business and not be in uniform. I, I, it's too depressing that I think one one of the many distasteful, but I think especially distasteful and distasteful is not strong enough. The really, really disgusting. Ugly. Now, disgusting is yeah. the best Ooh, word for there it. There you go. Uh, the the treatment of this this honorable soldier agree or disagree with the decisions he made but the attempt to portray him as un-American this this gross attempt to make it sound like he's not a loyal American dude's got a purple heart you know let it go uh, all right uh, I don't want to get all fired up about that let's talk about other aspects you know of the I story. love fired up Bobby no I and you know I don't I think so, okay that's my proposed <laughs> episode title fired up Bobby is the best definitely not doing that why not because that puts me out there our more listeners than I our like. listeners all know that like I I get fired up easily and it takes it actually takes something serious for you guys like I have no cap I I you know I'm the boy who cried wolf when it comes to getting fired up about this I do I do ration my my anxieties um spur, spurs and the rule of law you know those are two if you have to hang your hat on fight die on two hills those are two good ones um, those are, those are, you know, by the way, just kind of just digress. To, one of to, those is a good hill to die on. Well, and the, the, and the other one has a bunch of people who are not playing good basketball, so we just will not talk about so That's what I'm saying. That's why it's not a good it, hill to die on. It is. Our colleague, Jay Westbrook, who shares my love for the Spurs, we were lamenting that it really feels like the, the mojo is gone. Um, two decades of incredible basketball success. But I digress. What about these pardons, huh? <sighs> it's been a week for the president. Yeah. So um, so after threatening to do this for a while, right? the president, uh, what was it, last Thursday or Friday? I can't keep track of the days anymore. Um, issued what? It was one commutation and two pardons of um, two alleged and one convicted um, war criminals, right? Of the sort of soldiers who had been court-martialed or had been sort of in the court-martial process for war crimes. Uh, what, Goldstein, Gallagher, and Lawrence. I don't remember is the, the name of the third one. So um, this excited a huge yeah. amount of controversy, and rightly so. Rightly so. Um, this is uh, right, the, the same people who are demeaning Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, right, for you know an incredibly courageous act of to me patriotism, right, are celebrating war criminals for being you know exo- not exonerated, but for having their sentences or their proceedings thrown out, even after fellow soldiers testified against them. I, I I'll say this because I look, I'm not familiar with the details of the case, so yeah. I don't, I will not express an opinion on whether the cases were strong or weak. I, I'll have to defer to others on yeah, that. Fair. So I, I can't, on the face of it, argue that, like, no, this was preposterous. But I will say that insofar as the process was unfolding within reasonable bounds, it's extremely deleterious to the regular order and discipline of the force 
to have this sort of intervention. There's no question. In, unless unless there's a clear miscarriage of justice, which I there's my no limited exposure no to suggestion this. of that. And so so I got into a fight with someone on Twitter about like, well, you know, is there any legitimate? You know, could Trump pardon anyone, and you wouldn't decry it as illegitimate? I said absolutely. And I said, well, what are the criteria? I said, well, how about the criteria the Justice Department actually has for pardons and commutations? Right. Like, yeah. The- those those criteria exist entirely to insulate the president from charges yeah. of favoritism of sort of overriding the chain of command. It's not that this is beyond his power. It's that if you're not following these objective criteria that have been consistently applied, right, at least over the last 20 years since the Bill Clinton scandals, right, what you're running into is the very charge that you're doing this for shameless political reasons and in the process disrupting good order and discipline. It's a a normative and a policy critique. It's not a claim. We're definitely not claiming the pardon power couldn't be used this way because, indeed, this is a nice illustration of just how sweeping a power that is. But the reason why after the Bill Clinton scandal, right, DOJ and now both the Bush and Obama administrations, you know, created and abided by these guidelines was entirely to avoid this exact scenario. Right. Uh, Are you saying that because it's lawful doesn't mean it's right? (laughs) Imagine that. Lawful but awful, the Trump presidency. Lawful but awful. This pod, this podcast is awful and maybe not lawful. All oh, right, something something with lawful but awful. Lawful Taking but notes awful. on possible titles. Here. Um, speaking of lawful but awful. Oh, well, you're right. Okay, no, I'm good. What you got? <laughs> um, our, our our Trump rundown, right? So we've got pardons. Uh, what else? We, what else we have? We have whistleblower nonsense. Oh, what about the the West Bank and the settlements? Oh decision? yeah, speaking of lawful but awful. I'm and, sorry. And going, and going back to the State Department, right? So the U.S. is. Going to, apparently going to change its decades-old position on whether annexation – is it annexation-specific? So it's, it's, the question is the legality of the settlements, right? So, so the, the Israeli government has for decades, right, been encouraging, if not affirmatively enabling, the creation of settlements of Israelis in Israeli-occupied territory in the West Bank. Right. So in, just to be clear, from a sort of overarching high-altitude perspective, we're talking about territory that – Israel is not claiming is part of Israel. Right. It's claiming to have, it, it has and is claiming to have occupied it militarily going back quite a long ways. 67, uh, 73. And so you've got this long period of Israeli military control. Um, and in a circumstance in which, like, for example, the U.S. Uh, occupation of, of Iraq. So for fall 2003. Yes. Um, the United States, there's no question that international law would, would have precluded the United States from, say, I don't know, let's uh, let's begin starting to build permanent settlements that are subject to our law, not Iraqi law. Uh, now, what you might say, well, what about the military bases you build there? That That's okay. Right. But actually, you know, settling American colonists there, that sort of thing, that that's obviously not okay. And no one, no one claims otherwise that occupation law sort of transmutes over time into a right for you to control the land and ultimately, presumably, to annex it. To the contrary, Article 49.6 of the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 says expressly, and I'm quoting, the occupying power shall not transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies, period. Bingo. Yeah, and that's not, no one's ever considered that a, a controversial provision. That's a, no, a very mean, straightforward response to things that happened in World right. War II that were widely decried as some of the, some among the many horrors of that war. There, there have been arguments, right? Not that that provision doesn't mean what it says, but that there might, right, there, there have been some efforts by certain Israelis to argue that maybe that doesn't apply to this context. But right, the, you can just, dis- distinguishing it is, right. is a different matter. Right. But, but for 41 years, 
years, the consistent position of the U.S. government, right, has been that these settlements are a violation of 49-6, right? And that that's like, you know, part of why we don't support them, because we don't want to be encouraging right. violations of textual principles of international law that we have ratified and that are part of the law right. of the United States. Now, here's here's sort of a meta-legal question. Uh, is there anything about... This goes back to our last point about just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's right. Let's assume that we both agree, as I think we do, that, that this would be the wrong legal interpretation that they're moving towards. Yeah. Uh, is it ultra vires to actually make that change or is it just undesirable and, and wrong in the merits, but within their formal power to change their position? Like that is, I guess, I, I guess I don't want to hide the ball yeah. here. I think it's within their power to change their mind. I don't think they should, but I think they can. So uh, if the question is, does the United States have the power to override international law? No, it's not, not what I mean. I no, mean, no, no, can I the State Department I'm, change its mind I'm about going, what they're going I'm, I'm, I'm framing it as a progression okay. of, of steps, Okay. right? There's certainly no question that Congress, that, that, that the, the, whoever has the appropriate lawmaking power, right, can make law that overrides international law. Right? For our purposes. For our yeah. purposes. And so, but, but that's not what's going on here, right? We're not saying we no longer feel like 49-6 is the law, right. Right? right? Instead, this is a statement of foreign policy, right? That, that it is no longer necessarily the U.S. position that the settlements in the West Bank are a violation of international law. Not supported, I assume, by any white paper explaining the new legal analysis that would yield that conclusion. No, nope, just remarks to the press by Secretary Pompeo. Um, and so I just want to say, like, for a longer analysis, first, I would commend to everyone, Marty Lederman has a post on just security um, yesterday afternoon titled Assessing the New U.S. View on the Legality of Israeli Settlements in the West Bank that walks through all of this in Marty-esque detail. Um, Marty-esque in this case being a, a synonym for thorough. Thorough. Um, right. But I, I, I don't think it is beyond the pure power of the Secretary of State to change the U.S.'s position. I just think it's dumb. Like it's dumb, it's counterproductive. I don't know what you gain from it other than well, the political support. No, but that, but this is, and this is my objection that this is this is actually not a move that's designed to actually ameliorate the situation in the West Bank. This is not a move with an eye toward any kind of stable long-term solution to the problem of the West Bank. This is just for votes. This is just, we want to make it, you know, we want to create a wedge issue for um, one issue Jewish voters who tend to vote Democratic. What about the possibility that it also might have an eye towards helping Bibi? Does it have? I'm I'm no expert on Israeli domestic and so, politics, and so and so we're trying to sort, sort of, of giving it, giving him sort of a you know he's sitting there trying. I assume he's still trying there's, to there's form There's another that. right. There's another election coming in Israel. I think the third of this right. cycle. Right? Is, is this a way of sort of being like, yeah. hey, you want him there? Because look at all the look at all the good things that you get out of the U.S. when he's there. And, and I just want to say, like, I, I feel like in any other administration where we weren't like drowning in headlines, right? The this would be a big deal, and it would be controversial if it were suggested that the only reason why we were embracing such a decades-long policy shift, right, um, was for the current president's per, you know, political benefit and for, you know, a foreign ally's personal political benefit. I do think, you know, that said, that, that's largely right, but it's also possible that there are people doing the legal analysis who actually take that, as you described it, that sort of dissenting view about the relevance of, of the GC4 in this circumstance. That It could be stemming from a, um, a less cynical place than, than it might otherwise be. Now, uh, there's more. Subpoenas. Subpoenas on the way to the Supreme Court. And people, I think, misunderstanding the action that the Chief Justice took. Oh, boy, did they. Um, Can you unpack that for us? So since last we recorded, um, the first two of the Trumpy cases have made their way to the Supreme Court. On Thursday, as we predicted, um, the Trump, not the Trump, President Trump in his personal capacity, 
filed a cert petition in the second circuit case. This is the one where there was a subpoena issued by Manhattan District Attorney right. Cyrus Vance yeah. to Mazars. Um, and the principal argument in the cert petition is that um, the president is immune from such criminal process in state court, period. Um, but there's only a cert petition in that case because the parties had agreed that Vance would not attempt to enforce the subpoena while appeals were pending as long as Trump complied with certain deadlines. Um, and basically that, right, if you go fast enough, I won't try to expedite things even further. Right. So there's no urgency, like there's no emergency there. It's yeah. just, right, an ordinary supervision. Um, the briefing on that, I think, is going to be completed by, under under the terms of the agreement, by next week. Yeah, um, That'll, that's going to come up this term. Right. Well, it, so, and so the, it'll go to conference, right, where the Supreme Court votes on whether or not to take the case for the first time December 13th, Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, the real action was in the D.C. Circuit case in Mazars, where first, as we talked about briefly last week, you had the denial of rehearing on Bonk, um, and then you had on Friday the Trump, uh, President Trump, I keep conflating them, um, applying to Ju- Chief Justice Roberts in his capacity as Circuit Justice for the D.C. Circuit for a stay, because unlike in the New York case, there was no deal. Yeah. Um, so Mazars was potentially about to cough up the documents. Right. When, this Wednesday, uh, November, what's uh, this Wednesday? The 20th. Yeah, today. Um, today's Wednesday? Today's Wednesday. Yes. Uh, right. The, the D.C. Circuit's mandate would have issued today, yeah. but for a stay. Um, so the application came on Friday. On Monday, um, with the House's acquiescence, I mean, that's something we should stress here. Yeah. The Chief Justice issued what's called an administrative stay. Um, now, I realize this is a lot of legal jargon, but an administrative stay is not the same thing as the stay for which Trump was seeking. An administrative stay is a stay pending the stay. In other words, yeah. we, the court, have not yet had time to decide whether we're going to stay the lower court ruling while we consider whether to take your appeal. And so until we can decide whether to even stay the lower court ruling, we're going to issue a stay. Yeah, it's just like a TRO as compared to a preliminary injunction in route to figuring out the merits. I think all of this, the fact that he issued the administrative stay and the fact that I think that we soon eventually will get the regular stay, um, all that's entirely unsurprising because this is a one-way deal. Once those documents are out, they're out. So this is why why the internet got this totally wrong, right? So everyone reacted first to the administrative stay, like, oh, there go, you know, the best justices Trump could buy, right? Like, you know, it's... Yeah, no, baloney. Any, I would say... Any chief justice, any, of these, any judge stay. should issue the administrative and stay. And frankly, I think the court's going to vote to issue a stay they, they on have Friday. To. It would actually be abusive if they didn't, I think. I'm not sure it would be abusive. So I think. So let me just back up a second, right? So the relevant standard is the, the court's supposed to balance four factors, right? The likelihood that they're going to grant cert, the likelihood that they're actually going to rule for the president on the merits, right? The irreparable harm the president would suffer without a stay, and then the public interest. Right. Uh, my, let me amend my comment. I'm assuming they do want to grant cert, in which case, certainly they should stay, because the case is effectively lost by the president if they don't have And so a stay. the only question, right, is is where they are on likelihood of success on the merits. Right. right? That's right. If there really is a 0% chance, and there isn't, but if there right. really were a 0% chance of likelihood of success on the merits, yeah, the just, rest wouldn't matter. You would deny the right. say, and this is what some of the folks on the internet are saying, like, you know, this case has no merit, therefore yeah. they should deny it's the like, say. This is such high stakes, so much potentially turns on. This could be historic, right. depending on what's in those documents. So, so all this to which, say... Which, by the way, I think it will be a bombshell when that drops. 
drops. I mean, that, why else would Trump be fighting this so hard? Although by by the time we get there, it may be moot. Yeah. Um, so all of this is to say, I do think the court's going to issue a stay on Friday. I don't think it's going to be five to four, and I really don't think people should react to that as some major yeah. win for the president. Nope. Nope. Like yeah, it's a short term win, but it's not. I would not take that as any yeah. indication. I think it's no win at all. It's just it's just an expected delay. Now the interesting question becomes. What's the most realistic timeline for the oral argument? These will be consolidated, presumably. Uh, and, and then when's the realistic deadline for getting the opinion? The, the latest we ever get opinions typically is summer, you know, late, June. late June. So uh, we might get it sooner than that, but we might be looking at the, that final opinion drops and it's the Mazars deal. And so around the 4th of July, we should be having documents because I, I – I think they'll probably, well, we don't know what's going to happen, but I think they'll probably, probably comply pretty quickly at that point. Yeah. So assuming the documents then go to the House and to the New York DA, uh, is it obvious, do you think, is it as a predictive matter, that it's going to leak to the public really quickly? No. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, but I mean, it's not obvious that it won't, right? Like yeah. it's a close call. But I mean, this assumes that this is still relevant by June and July, right? I mean, it's possible that there's so much out there already you think by that then. Maybe President Pence will find it interesting. <laughs> is that what you're saying by then? <laughs> I, so I predict not. Whatever else is happening, I don't. I think it'll still be President Trump. Well, but we also had that crazy medical thing on Saturday. So I didn't really understand this because my understanding, I did see there was a big kerfuffle. Uh, so he went and had a medical appointment that may or may not have been regularly scheduled. So maybe something happened. It wasn't. It wasn't regularly scheduled. It wasn't regularly scheduled. So he had something. And they're de- denying to the hilt there's anything wrong. Right. It's like he went for the first of a series of tests as part of his regular physical that wasn't scheduled. So are you suggesting a Dave scenario? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that what is afoot? Or is this a – this would be a – if suddenly next week, suddenly uh, this like congenial, kind, kinder, gentler – Donald Trump emerges and people point back to that moment and start wondering, where is Kevin Klein amidst all this? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go watch Dave. Um, great movie. Kevin Klein, great actor. But probably that's not what's happening. Last Trumplandia topic we have, Attorney General Barr gave the uh, 19th annual Barbara Olson Memorial Lecture at FedSoc's Federal Society's National Lawyers Convention. And it was a barn burner. It was a doozy. Burner. He... Uh, he came out with both barrels, did he not? Um, he came out with more. I mean, he came out with with both barrels and some and some extra ammo. Yeah, yeah. This was a Rambo speech for sure. Um, so a lot of this, there was a lot of sort of red meat. I, I think that the bulk of the speech, which is framed as a uh, exploration of. Not the imperial presidency thesis, but how that's got it precisely backwards. Right, the demise of executive power well, in this recent is, years. This is sort of the, uh, it'd be familiar for those who focus on the executive power controversies associated with David Addington and Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld's views. This idea of those who were in government during the 70s, especially in the Ford administration, as various reform legislation got enacted, um, everything from you know freedom of information to FISA and all, all points in between. Uh, this idea that far from an overweening executive that's become more powerful over time, instead, which is the classic imperial presidency thesis, uh, instead what you've got is the increasingly uh, unconstrained Congress uh, improperly and unconstitutionally trying to put statutory constraints around the president and the judiciary also somehow doing the same Running thing. Running amok. Right. So, so the first part of the speech is kind of a, an, a set of claims, I think a rather remarkable set of originalist claims that well, many an originalist would disagree with say. about 
um, what it was that, that concerned the framers and the founding generation the most about central power. Um, long story short, on that point, he's making the claim that it was really the legislature. It was really parliamentary supremacy that terrified the framers. The claim is that the the concern over the overweening executive had been solved in the English constitutional order from the Glorious Revolution onward. And by the time you get to the American Revolution, what we were concerned about was legislative power run amok, which I, I don't I think is at best an overstatement. I think the right framing, my own view, is that what they were concerned with was central power run amok, and that they frankly weren't terribly concerned since King George III and Parliament were working hand in hand. It was not some situation in which they were worried about a branch-specific abuse of power. They were concerned about centralized power. And they wanted to create institutions that would, they wanted to create checking functions, right, that would that would yeah. have the effect of preventing, you know, runaway arrogations of power by the government. And thus the separation of powers. Hey, that old chestnut. To, to, to not to address the problem of an overstrong legislature, but to divide power amongst the branches because the entire apparatus of the federal government was potentially too powerful. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. That's the idea. So, so I think there's a description That's a good line. Someone should write that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't act surprised, you guys. Because I, I wrote them. <laughs> wrote them or wrote it? Wrote it. Wrote it. Very good. Um, so there's more. There's a there's a call out basically to Julian Davis Mortensen. Where are you? There's a whole thing about the uh, the federative power. By the way, there's a, there's a simple mistake he makes. I think uh, an awkwardly obvious mistake when he when he divides up strands of executive power between sort of the actual execution of power or execution of the laws function, then the external sovereignty functions, and then he talks about residual emergency power with reference to internal emergencies and says that that's the federative power. John Locke wrote, "quote uh, the federative power." Federative power, quote, contains the power of war and peace, leagues and alliances, and all the transactions with all persons and communities without the Commonwealth, close quote. The federative power was meant to refer to the thing that Barr is talking about as the external powers, the sovereign function. So that's just a mistake. And um, you got to be careful if you're going to make these kinds of claims and expect expect that to hold up as an originalist account, um, which I actually have some sympathy for if it had been framed correctly. Uh, let's move on from that because it gets more interesting, of course, when he when he depicts the Congress as having in recent years, quote, just in the past few years, become overweening and no longer playing fair vis-a-vis the presidency. And he basically frames this all as an act of the capital R resistance in contrast to a loyal opposition. And basically, not basically, expressly saying that this movement, which he sort of associates with all who are opposing the administration, as being willing to support, quote, every tool and maneuver available to sabotage the functioning of his administration. Now, close quote. Now, it is no doubt true that some people see the problems of the Trump administration as warranting any sort of any sort of measure to disrupt its functioning. Sure. Um, but to, to tar everyone with that brush is is a gross over uh, over, uh, you know, it's it's. It's totally inappropriate. And of course, it's being used here in a way that happens to encompass any and all disagreement and opposition, which is outrageous. And frankly, uh, from a conservative perspective, a very disturbing concept because it suggests that dissent itself is disloyal. Um, he's, He's implying that there is somehow a space where you can be loyal opposition without being the resistance, but he doesn't leave any space actually for it. Um, 
And it's also there's a little element of hypocrisy too. I think in in recent a little, dec- el- a little in, element in recent decades, one of the characterizing features of our nasty partisan politics is all too often a focus on how do we just prevent the other guy from having any scores rather than focusing on picking your battles. Um, you can go on and on with this sort of stuff. There there's a there's this almost uh, um, Manichaean quality where where he casts conservatives as being the only ones who are being virtuous and anyone who's not conservative is being unvirtuous. And as someone who, who in the past would have described himself as conservative, though the label's now shifting, I'm not shifting, but the label's shifting. Um, that That's no way to talk about your uh, ideological opponents uh, writ large and across all of them in a democracy. But well, then, and then there's the end of the speech, right? I mean, the, right. the you know, the progressive holy war. There's all this business, all this language. It quote, a holy mission. To, the, the progressives are engaged in quote a holy mission to use the coercive power of the state to remake man and society in their own image. Can I, can I, can I just read this for a second? Yeah, I, I want to read a, in the same paragraph. I want to read a quote and I want to preface the quote by saying, as I'm reading this, think about Mitch McConnell and Merrick Garland. Whatever means they use are therefore justified because by definition they are virtuous people pursuing a deific end. They are willing to use any means necessary to gain momentary advantage in achieving their end, regardless of collateral consequences and the systemic implications. They never ask whether the actions they take could be justified as a general conduct equally applicable to all sides. Conservatives, on the other hand, dot, 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 give me a break. Like, I mean, you know... it's bad enough to sort of to piss on me, but don't then tell me it's raining, right? I mean, <laughs> like, this is, I found, so the executive power part of the speech I found just wrong. Right. I found this offensive. Well, okay, so I Personally think, offensive. And I think it was meant to offend you and meant to rally you and anyone yeah. else who felt the same way. I think it was meant to be a provocation. And so that my, my advice to you is to not allow it to be as much as possible. Don't take that bait. Um, but this and, is the Attorney and, General of the United States. I know, I know. The Chief I'm, Law Enforcement Officer. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying resist the intended effect. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. It's outrageous. To t- it's it's not becoming and fit in a democracy to speak this way writ large. If you're talking about a particular person who's earned this kind of characterization, and by the way, I do not doubt for a second there are those who would like to use the course of power of the state to remake man society in their own image. Um, but I also think that's true. It's a quality that's shared across the political spectrum, which is why we should be concerned about overly powerful, unchecked government power. And that's what at least I used to think counted as conservative. Now, um, enough about that. There's Wait, a, I, have, I have one more thing uh, to say. Yeah, please. And he got a standing ovation. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a shame. And I just got to say, like, you know, I'm sorry. I, I have plenty of friends who I, I, I play people who I think of as friends who associate proudly with the federal society. Shame on you for standing up in applause of that speech. Shame on you. I, I would just say, be careful not to paint with too broad a brush. There'll be plenty of people. There are lots and lots of people who are Federal Society associated who are not there standing up applauding no, no, I, this and speech. I, and I, I'm not saying all FedSoc yeah. members are implicated by the yeah. speech. I'm saying the people who were in the room who thought it was appropriate to reward this kind yeah, of... Yeah, no, I agree. Like, just, just rule of law destructive pablum. No. Um, and by the way, while we're there, he also gets Bumetian wrong. He says... Well, Bum- well that's, where I, that's what I want to get to, uh, right? Okay. So at the very end, there's... So he, he tags Congress. I wasn't he, pissed he, off enough. He talks about the overweening judiciary as well. And, and of course, this gets right into our, our core ground here. So let's look at this. So he basically makes... Uh, he makes a couple of arguments. First, he says... Uh, 
he's going to bash the courts on this ground, uh, that they've effectively abandoned the political question doctrine, but by wading into separation of powers disputes where they shouldn't. Which, by the way, isn't true, but that's okay. Well, right. So they, they rarely do get involved in things. But I think this is nothing more and nothing less than an, it's sort of a shot across the bow, right? He, there's a bunch of cases of this kind coming up, and he's trying to plant a flag that this signals that, by the way, the, the Fed sock approved position is you shouldn't get involved in these cases. Let Congress work it out with us because they're afraid of what the courts are going to do. Uh, and then he shifts from, from sort of stay out of cases altogether to in the cases you do take, he says courts have abandoned deference to the executive branch on certain core Article II questions. Um, you know, Hello, Trump versus Hawaii? Right. So he actually cites specifically the travel ban decision, just focusing on the lower court decisions, right. which weren't deferential enough, as as if... The there, Supreme Court decision never happened. So here's the thing, and there's a really important point that I think no conservative should should sign up for. He's basically saying in, in, in no uncertain terms that if the president says the reason was X, you cannot look behind the curtain, no matter the possibility of bad faith. You know, th- that is... I think an extremely dangerous proposition. It is possible to walk and chew gum at the same time as you like to say and have a general principle of judicial deference, but to have that turn into binding deference where no matter what, as long as magic words are said, the president makes a comically false claim of national security needs for, say, a tariff and courts can't review that. We're just stuck with that. I don't think that reflects very well the idea of of checks on supreme government power. Nope. But it gets worse. It does. Because when it comes time, there's there's a whole digression about nationwide injunctions because, you Which, know, that's you know, a thing. That's a thing. He singles out. Uh, he said, I'm going to quote this because this is right up our alley. I'm going to write for this, write about this for Lawfare later once I find some time. Oh, good. Uh, he says, the most blatant, and I'm quoting here, the most blatant and consequential usurpation or usurpation, I should say, of executive power in our history, in our history was played out during the administration of President George W. Bush when the Supreme Court, in a series of cases, now, by that, he never fills it out except for one, but he, presumably he's referring to Hamdi, uh, Hamdi Hamdan, quote, set itself up as the ultimate arbiter and superintendent of military decisions inherent in prosecuting a military conflict, decisions that lie at the very core of the president's discretion as commander-in-chief. Oh, like that that one case where he, he uh, interfered with the commander-in-chief's ability to control the armed force? No, what's he talking about? He's talking about the sequence of detainee cases. The only where we, one- had, where we had people in custody, right? Like, well, so, first of all, some of these are about prosecutions. Right. Some of Which these we chose to uh, right. We chose to invoke judicial process. Right. How well, dare the courts right. get involved? One of them is about a U.S. citizen held militarily inside the United States. How dare the courts get involved? And therefore, the only one he actually talks about Boumedian. is Boumedian. And he says, Did uh, Ray Randolph give this speech? He 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 says or he claims, quote, it took the rules that govern our domestic criminal justice process and carried them over and superimposed them on the nation's activities when it engaged in armed conflict with foreign enemies. Wait, what? It did. Wait, get to the part where he talks about due process. Well, okay, so um, let's just stop there. So first of all, the, the implication is that um, you have to follow criminal procedure to hold military detainees. And of course, that's not at all what happened to Bumediene. No, no, wait, the that, court expressly says the opposite right. in Hamdi, right. where it was a U.S. citizen. Now, fairly, what he could have said fairly was that, it, in my opinion, he, the, the court did break new ground in 
non-citizen military detainees being given access to habeas corpus uh, just for the fact of their detention while the armed conflict continues, etc. That'd be a fair critique. I've made that critique. That'd be fine. But then you couldn't really characterize it as an outrageous, unprecedented, worst in our history uh, judicial intervention. So it's so it's not framed that way. Um, he also says, uh, well, I don't think I have the quote here. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is what you're talking about. Uh, the impact of Boumediene has been extremely consequential. For the first time in American history, our armed forces is, are, incapable of taking prisoners. We're now in a crazy position that if we identify a terrorist enemy in the battlefield, such as ISIS, we can kill them with drone or any other weapon, but if we capture them and want to hold them at Guantanamo or in the United States, note those qualifiers. The military is tied down in developing evidence for an adversarial process and must spend resources in interminable litigation. No, there was a wave of litigation. The government mostly won, and it only attaches if you bring them into the geographic United States or Gitmo when we had detainees. Now, I know you and I disagree about this, but... When we in in Al-Makala, the yeah. courts refused to go there. You know, we, we don't we don't agree about the, we, don't, we don't disagree about what actually happened. Right. Like you and I agree that like the the story he's peddling is false. So it actually all went pretty quickly. The government mostly won. Sure, I, I completely agree that's a disincentive. But he's trying. He's gilding the lily so much that the lily's bending over with all the weight of the gold that's been pressed upon it to try to make it sound so much worse than it is. It. I disagree, as you know, with certain aspects of Boumediene and all that. So I have some sympathy with the general direction he's trying to go into. But I would never describe it in these apocalyptic terms. And apocalyptic is kind of the right tone for the whole thing. He also says that the court gave uh, recognized that uh, uh, enemy soldiers during wartime have due process rights. There isn't a word in Boumediene, at least in the majority opinion, about the due yeah. process no, clause. No, no, no. So the whole thing is it doesn't bear close it's inspection. And if, and if you're going to bring... If you're going to bring it like this, yeah. then you should be buttoned up in your claims. Right. Come correct. Yeah. If you're going to come, come correct. This right. podcast comes correct. I'm trying to, I'm just working uh, on it. I'm a, title, on I'm a title generator today. It's right. just like, it's, I, so I thought, I, I, I thought about like, you know, doing like a point by point refutation of the speech, like writing a blog post, right? Go paragraph by paragraph. Right. Be like, here's what's wrong with this paragraph. And it's like. I have better things to do with my time than respond to this nonsense from the Attorney General of the United States. Well, I, I will write something on Lawfare about the Boumediene yeah. in National Security You want to co-author? We could. That'd hey, be fun. You know, we've let's, done that before. Let's do it. Okay. Done. All right. What else have we got to talk about? Let's we're just have someone transcribe while we're sitting here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is why, um, you know, one does not always like watching oneself uh, being recorded, giving a talk or whatever, because... You think it all sounds great as you're as you're mumbling it. These incomplete sentences I, I pitch into this microphone. If I actually had to read a, a written version of what I'm saying here, I'm quite confident I would not enjoy it. Um, let's note real quick the Muthana decision. Yeah. Okay. So we had talked way back when about Hoda Muthana, um, who was one of the so-called ISIS wives, right? Uh, uh, a woman who, at least at the time, Bobby had an American passport, right? Um, who went to Syria, um, presumably for bad reasons. Um, and there was this whole thing where the president and Secretary Pompeo took to Twitter, right, to say, we're going to revoke her citizenship. And of course, everyone went understandably nuts in one direction or the other, um, raising the complex question of expatriation um, and how hard it is to expatriate someone, even if they went to go fight for a group like ISIS. Not clear even she was fighting as opposed to just being in Syria at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
We, well, I think the claim was she'd gone over. She wouldn't fight him, but that doesn't mean she wasn't there to be part of the Islamic State. Correct, but there's nothing in USC Section 1481A yeah. that says no, that's a ground she, for expatriation. Right. So we had sort of suggested back when this made headlines last year or sometime. I've, I've lost track of time. I'm, I'm getting old. Um, that there, we had to be really important. It was really important to separate out the two potential citizenship problems in her case, right? The first is the Trump Pompeo claim that we're going to take away her citizenship as a punishment for what she did, right? And how that would have been a terrible precedent, it would have been really controversial, et cetera. But there was this technical argument that she specifically was never a citizen in the first place based on the coincidence or quirk, right, of when her father's status as a diplomat actually expired. The key thing to understand here is that under U.S. law, you, you do not become an American citizen by dint of being born here if the reason you're here is that your parents are in diplomatic status inside the United States. Um, that's just long been the rule as far as I know. Yep. And so there was a factual question, setting aside all the other more bombastic claims, there was a factual question, wait a minute, was she born in the United She was born in the United States, no one denied that, but was it while her father was still, because it was definitely at the tail end of his time as a diplomat, had he ceased to be a diplomat at that moment, or did it occur right after that status ceased? In which case, he, she was still here, she would have been a citizen, and the court has now held that actually the government was right. She was born while her father was in diplomatic status, and therefore district court, district court yeah. said, and so therefore, uh, or at least while there was residual immunity, right? Because there's a short like wind down period. There's a wind down period, right? But th that itself, as a legal claim, is not controversial. There was just a fact dispute. So it turns out, at least as far as the district court assessed it, uh, the government was right. She wasn't a citizen to begin with. So I, I have some sort of marginal objections with how the with, with Judge Walton's analysis. I mean, the my biggest one, Bobby, is that the State Department itself had already concluded on at least two occasions that she was a citizen, and so it seems like you know I wonder if there is some argument that there ought to be some kind of that the the burden should be higher on the State Department given its prior determinations. My point is just that the headline is very different, right? That this is not no, nothing about Muthana's ISIS affiliation. Right, yeah, had no bearing on this. Had no whatsoever. bearing on the legal question of whether she was a U.S. citizen. It was all this retroactive thing based upon what what the what her father's diplomatic status was at the time of her birth. I think we can quibble with even that holding, but that's a very different case. Yeah, well, I agree with that. That basically the the takeaway is this is a fact pattern that actually is extremely narrow and very rarely going to arise. There's yeah. no reason to think it's going to be any kind of recurring issue for the larger problem of, of American citizens or people with claims to American citizenship who went over and became part of the Islamic State. Um, so kind of a kind of a nothing burger from that larger national security legal perspective, uh, as it turns out. OK, let's pivot to frivolity yeah, so we, filled I, I, with, I, I do uh, want to say, we, we, we still, I've been promising people for weeks a, a, a military commission's update, and we just haven't had time for it. So, yeah, because we want to do it right. Right. So hopefully, I don't know what if we're going to have time to record next week because it's Thanksgiving. Um, uh, sure, we can manage. If we can, we'll Maybe try Tuesday. But Are you around Tuesday? I'm around Tuesday. All right. Tuesday it is. All right. So um, I really, this is not for lack of interest. It's actually just for wanting to do it justice. Yeah. Like we don't want to squeeze it into five minutes. Wanting to do it justice. Unlike everything else at Guantanamo. Ouch. Okay. Not so. But. Frivolity time. Speaking of speaking of doing things justice, we promised reviews of both episode one of The Mandalorian and episode one of the third season of The Crown. Should we do episodes one and two of Mandalorian? We we didn't tell people we were. Well, gonna it, we'll two. break it out so people can tune out if yeah. they want to. Okay, so we're going to be very careful as to spoilers. If you like the idea of watching The Mandalorian or The Crown and you have not yet done so with the new episodes that just dropped, great talking to you. 
we'll we'll see you next week. Thanks for being there. Um, but stay now for let's. You want to talk quickly about the crown first? Yeah, we can do crown first. All right. So um, the the key question is how do we feel about the new actors and actresses? Are they are they doing justice to their predecessors? I think so. I really like what I've seen in this early going. So first of all, Olivia Coleman is amazing. And, you know, it's nice to see everyone realizing she's how amazing she is. She's strong right off the bat. The, she has a problem, right? And the problem is that she's an amazing actress playing a pretty boring person. Yeah, I don't know how boring she is. I think that now that we've got, the, for those of us who've learned yeah. a lot about her through the prior seasons or yeah. otherwise, you, you have, there's so much sort of emotional complexity uh, for someone who's forced into what is ironically kind of a boring role. So like the challenge for the actor and the, and the opportunity for the actor right. to then be able to display this, including the nuances that she's specifically charged with displaying here, the, the maturity and like the, the experience that's come into play as compared to the prior uh, edition where you yes. had to show the inexperience and yes. the uncertainty. Yes. I, thought, I thought it came through really nicely just the way she handled herself. No, she's a brilliant actress. Yeah. I, just, I think what's, what's I think interesting about The Crown is that as it progresses further into Elizabeth's life and reign, right, Elizabeth, I think, increasingly becomes the least interesting character compared to all of the people around her and in her orbit. So in that respect, you know, Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret <laughs> is just inspired. That's, that's great. Yeah, that's good. Um, the new uh, the new. Duke of Edinburgh, right? Uh, yeah. Menzies, right? Um, so I like him. You know, what's interesting is um, he's, his whole affect is different from, I don't remember the actor who played the Duke yeah, of Edinburgh yeah. in season one and two. Like, you know, the Duke comes off as a bit of a prick in the first two seasons. And at least in episode one of season three, he comes across as like a sort of softening influence. Like, a, you yeah, know. no, it feels like a different guy. Yeah. And, and maybe that's part of the, Maybe that's the accurate rendition that look with the passage of time, the qualities, the frustrated ambitions and right. desires and interests which but not, but, but not that much time passed between the end of season two and the beginning yeah. of season three. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, uh, so we have, the, we have the demise of Churchill. Yeah, it's, uh, that was, of course, a, you know, a nice sort of bookend moment. Spoiler alert, Churchill dies. <laughs> he doesn't make it. He doesn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't make it. Yeah. Um, we have some, some, some spy drama. Yeah, that's very. You know, so the whole Harold Wilson piece is very interesting, and I think for a lot of observers who don't follow, you know, yeah. UK political history and 20th century history post-war, um, you know, they they don't understand quite how you know Titanic some of these changes were, um, and the social upheaval, right, and the economic struggles, right, and all of this stuff. So yeah. um, I, I thought episode one was good. Um, I, you know, it was, it dragged a little for me in the middle. And so I hope that there's a little more, you know, I, I have a sense of what's coming because I actually do know a bit about 1960s British political history and some of it's going to be really fascinating and some of it's going to be really depressing. And so yeah. I'm not sure how I'm feeling about this. Yeah, it'd be interesting if they can keep the level of interest up. But, but like a lot of these types of uh, high quality, uh, long series, yeah. it's the quality of the acting that and makes the so difference. it's so good. Yeah. It's All just right. so good. Will we will we be able to say the same thing about The Mandalorian? So if you've watched The Crown but not The Mandalorian. Bye. And, yeah. Again, nice talking to you. Let's talk first just about episode one. And let's be careful with it. Lots of spoilers coming up. Um, your gut reaction to the overall thing? Meh. Ooh, so that that's pretty low. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not like, wow. But I'm more of like, oh, that was fun. I enjoyed that. I look forward to the next episode. Meh. You're on the meh team. What, I'm, me, I'm team what, meh. What left you flat about it? What disappointed you? Um, 
this is going to sound really obnoxious, right? But I want I want to know what's happening in the world, and by world I mean in the universe, like in the right that you know. You're just not interested in the project of a sort of an individual story on this backwater. I am, but we don't learn anything. I mean, what do we learn about the Mandalorian in episode one? Well, that's not the measure. It's an eight episode arc so you basically got a little over four hours of story yeah. this is just the setup that's meant to be mysterious and the whole magic the is reveal to, at the end. yeah it's gonna get in and there's a nice little there's a, there's a i think a pretty wonderful <laughs> reveal at the end of episode one i thought that was an incredible moment but so here's the thing right so baby yoda do, 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 but it's not yoda, but it's not yoda do, I, I, well i don't know what the name of the, the race is so. no but, but right the, the problem is, is that right so so in the narrative right we're, we're we're meant to we're meant to understand that this is taking place like so, like four or five years yeah. after post endor after post endor right um you know, so there's no empire. There isn't yet like the first order or whatever right. the hell the stupid thing is that comes yeah. up. And we're in the interregnum, right? Um, and so by that logic, right, Yoda's dead, right? So so that's not Yoda. No, right. I don't think anybody's claiming. And I think some of the external commentators are like, no, it's, it's not like reborn Yoda. It's just a, it's just a, it's a Yoda. But it, but relative. he he is some kind of alien, and then uh, there's one of them there. And uh, he's really cute. He's really cute. <laughs> he's really cute. So, I mean, can we can we tie an episode two or? Oh, well, hold on, hold on. Because uh, there are things like, episode two that I want to sort of yeah, yeah. Just uh, any any gems, things, the highlights and the lowlights from episode one. Like for me, the low light, and this is inevitable because this is a Disney Plus production. It's not an HBO miniseries. There's got to be some stuff that's catering towards the kid audience. I thought the the goofiness of the Mandalorian trying to learn to ride that yeah. that uh, beast, and then like, oh, no, a few moments, okay, do the horse whisper thing. Now you can ride it. Okay, great. Now he's great. It's comfortable. That was painful. It dragged on, but I love Nick Nolte as as the guy. I have spoken. Nick Nolte of all people to cast. That's pretty brilliant. I think that voice is is wonderful, and I like the I like the diction and the style of that character. Yeah, I found him enjoyable. It was a nice little touch, even though it's kind of got that classic Star Wars comic relief element to it. But but he was good. If you got to have that, at least it's not Jar Jar Binks. Miss, I like it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, I thought uh, the, uh, the the bounty droid. Bounty nice. Droid. So I la- that okay, guy so, was great. So the bounty droid. I, I was I was I was definitely high in the bounty droid. Oh, you're a member of the guild. Yeah. What about the, what about all the callbacks to the the original Cantina yep. scene? So the yep. opening has has both a really nice homage to the Cantina fight. He goes to the bar. They come up and hassle him. It's straight out of the original. Only this time, it's not Luke. It's not Ben Kenobi. It's much tougher and meaner. And I love it when he lassos the guy and then yeah, pulls him yeah, back through yeah. the slicing and dicing doorway. Yeah. Which, by the way, don't they have safety features on those I would things? Think they, I would think they would. I know he blasted the... the. Although also, apparently, did you see that uh, there's a whole uproar because the re-release of episode four on Disney+, Plus? they once again restructured yeah. the, the Han Greedo Honestly, I think, I think that's done just to get people to go watch it. Of course it is. Um, um, okay, so... So, 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 so that's episode one. Okay. All right. Episode now, one, Now we're going to talk about... Episode two. So if you haven't seen episode two and don't want spoilers, yeah. Bye. All right. So now it's so episode two. Now it's a buddy show. That's um, a buddy show. It's it's one man and a baby. One bounty hunter and a baby. He's fifty. How's he's not a he's just he's just small. He's a baby. But he's a baby who's a Jedi. He's a Jedi baby. Just he, he's so I mean, naturally. I mean, isn't that, I mean, isn't that the big reveal of episode two? That the, oh. that that the Yoda the Yoda yeah. like. I'm not surprised that like he can do stuff and but it's so cute. He keeps <laughs> it's as a parent. The whole thing, it, 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 I think it's it's wonderfully done, clearly orchestrated by someone who has a feel for that parenting feel of like, oh, there's my kid out of the room again, and I'm right. trying get to do ba- something get here. back in your hovering and, and crib. He's, he's sitting there, and, and the bounty hunter doesn't know it, but he's, he's trying to do like the force heal, yeah, yeah. trying to help him out, and, he's like, uh, and you think he's going to do it, and it's so cute, and it's just like that parenting like back in the crib. 
back in the crib. So great. I loved that. I thought that was fine. I also really liked the Indiana Jones homage when he's hanging off the side of the sand I, I was, crawler. I was looking at the same thing. Yeah. I was like, this is totally uh, um, um, Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Absolutely. Where, where he's holding on to the turret yes. of, the ta- of the Panzer. His, where, his, where his strap has him hanging yeah, yeah, yeah. there. And they, they smile. And they, try, they go and to the controls. And they, and they, and they like, kind of laugh. And they go. It was. I think it was even shot similarly. Yeah, I, yeah. There's no way that's an accident. That, that shot looks visually the same. Where it's I'm, like he's about to be ground into the side of the cliff. I'm very confident that was an homage. That I totally, was great. I totally had that too. Yeah, I liked that a whole bunch. I thought the battle with the rhino thing was way the sand over, monster. Yeah, I'm like, what? This is all just. It's not really even character development. It just it gives you the. It's all just a long protracted setup so that right. Baby Yoda can, can do come the along force. and do the force. And then he's too tired. The little guy's all tuckered out. Because he's used all, he's used all his Jedi power. Yeah, it was great. That and was, then Mandalorian says, "I don't. You know, he he's not injured at least physically." Yeah, no, that was I liked that. That was good. You know, but it took so long to get there, and it's like. So contrived. I met him in a swamp down in Dagobah, where <laughs> nice, he bubbled all the time like a giant carbonated <laughs> soda. Yo, 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 yoda. Um, no, S-O-D-A, S-O-D-A soda. He doesn't, he doesn't oh, he doesn't, he doesn't switch? I saw the little right. run sitting there on a log. <laughs> I'm more familiar with the original than the Weird Al version. I'm more familiar with the Weird Al version than the original. We, we that That's a good division of labor on what we're going to listen to this afternoon. Um the uh, Jawas. At first, I was so excited to see them. Yeah. And I love it. Ooh, dee dee. That was great. The, mi- the like, minionification yeah. Yeah. of the Jawas. I mean, they might as well have had them throw back the hoods and start sucking, talking about bananas. They, it was way too much. Right. And, I, and again, it's they've got an audience that's not just a bunch of you know Gen X retreads like me. There's there's kids that they want to be excited about it. And I'm sure they thought it was funny. But man, it was so miniony. Now, in fairness, go back and look at the original Jawas. Pretty minion-y from the beginning, but boy, they really hit that pretty hard. Yep. Um, what else is there to say about that episode? Um, do you feel like you learned anything about what the arc of this is? Nope. All right, then. We got six I mean, I think, episodes I think, to go. I think, what's, I think what's clearly coming on is like, you know, he becomes attached to the baby Yoda. Oh, he's, he's not going to turn it over, that's for right? sure. He's not going to actually re- return for the bounty. And the question becomes like, you know, what happens to him as the the dark forces who want the baby Yoda? Right. We're going to start getting flashbacks. We're going to find out what really motivates this character. Well, presumably the people who are after the baby Yoda is aware are, are aware that he's a Jedi. Yeah. Right? And that... Yeah. And that, and that and, and, of course, this presumably will feed into First Order's yep. emergence in some meaningful fashion. Not as a central plot point, but it'll it'll help us understand the newest series. Um, and presumably he's going to find, you know, this greater purpose that in some way or fashion will resolve some inner conflict he's had this whole time as he's been going around, you know, being a bounty hunter, bounty hunter, making money. Yep. He'll find greater purpose. Presumably will die in delivering the goods Rogue One style or something like that. Who knows? Um, but I think it'll end up being illuminating, and I think it will get you your wider universe, what's happening in the Star Wars universe relevance. And uh, I think once the helmet comes off, I think it's really going to be fun, because then you can finally get some real acting. And I think it's the guy that played uh, Prince Oberon from Game of Thrones. Really? Oh, yeah. So I think, actually, when the helmet comes off, it's gonna, it should be real good, because that guy was a lot of fun huh. in that setting. All right. Um, well, anyway, I'm looking forward to. I mean, I, so uh, episode two was much less meh, and it's at least going to get me to watch episode three. Good. Um, meanwhile, even though you don't watch it, I'm just going to say one quick word. Um, season four of The Man in the High Castle. Okay, now you got to watch out for spoilers because um, no, now I am watching. I'm almost done with season one now. No spoilers. All I'm going to say is fascinating. So you recommend because I need you to warn me if it's like it goes real south and and I should give up on my commitment because I'm pretty far in now. There are some weird choices 
that the showrunners make at the end of season four to sort of wind down some of the plot lines. But yeah. but so you've seen the whole thing? I've, I'm done. <laughs> okay. Um, it's worth it's worth getting it's worth making it to the end. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. That's actually the comfort I I'm needed. not sure it's the ending I wanted, but it's 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 it doesn't go in the annals of worst endings ever. Okay. Uh, friends who are listening who are like Steve, familiar with how this turns out. Please don't uh, spoil it for me. No, I'm, no spoilers. I'm, I'm enjoying a... Spoiler alert. It ends. I'm six ep- seven episodes in on season one, so lots of fun. I'll catch up to you, and then we can talk Man in the High Castle. Cool. All right. Um, gosh, who knows what the heck's going to happen between now and next Tuesday. Yeah, but at a minimum, we'll talk military commissions. Hopefully. Unless, you know, it's overtaken by other events. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are the award-winning at NSL Podcast. Thank you, Austin Chronicle. Bobby got me a plaque. That's why I say that. Yes. I I have a plaque in my office now. The plaque is great. We'll tweet out a picture of it. All right. Um, And, you know, everybody stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you next week. I have spoken.